Hello, I'm Felix, and welcome to You Gotta Hack That, the podcast all about the security behind the Internet of Things. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about medical imaging devices. Medical imaging devices, also known as MIDs or MIDs, are things like the X-ray machines, MRI scanners, CT scanners, that sort of thing. The, the kind of tech that you'd find in a hospital scene where they have the ability to see your insides without cutting you open. Um, these machines tend to be pretty large and you you don't want them outside of a hospital setting, uh, not only because they're wildly expensive, but also because they are potentially dangerous. Uh, you don't want to x-ray yourself too frequently because you might get cancer or other complications. The Large machines are clearly, they're going to be made up of thousands of different small components. But from a like a, a class of components point of view, there are several different areas that you need to think about. There is the, the sciencey nerdy bit at the one end of this process, which is the image acquisition systems. And so that's the bit that does the, the physics or the, the chemistry and, and gets the image of your insides. Uh, and that's supported by the electromechanical part. So thinking about servos and motors and uh, moving bits and pieces. Uh, and then obviously those moving bits and pieces have servo controllers or motor controllers or whatever so that they know what to do uh, because they're ultimately quite simple bits of kit as far as kind of uh, the cleverness is concerned. Um, and from that, you have uh, a variation of different systems that will go with it. So you'll have probably a host controller or main PC, which is the bit that we interact with and, uh, and communicate with. And that's sometimes that's a standalone computer. Uh, but sometimes, depending on the machine, it will also be like a small embedded system that's strapped to the side of it. Um, the the embedded system that's strapped to the side of it tends to be the more like simplistic, run this type of scan, press go, that sort of thing. Whereas the host controller will be a bit more uh, featureful. Um, so it will include things like um, uh, sending the responses to a, a particular consultant or recording the fact that it's you as a patient or uh, you know that kind of activity. And you need a little bit more of a, a full-fat OS for that to make it the most user-friendly, whereas you don't really for those embedded little screens that you see on the side. You can just get away with a few buttons. You'll also have the image reconstruction or construction machine, and that might actually be a field programmable gate array or FPGA, or maybe a couple depending on the performance it's needed. And FPGAs, for those who are not familiar, are essentially like really efficient machines for doing a particular purpose. They are programmable, but they're designed to be not used with an operating system. They're used with um, uh, like a set of routines that, that go through uh, the machine and they just do that one purpose uh, rather than all sorts of multifunction uh, purposes like you have with a, a main full fat OS. The other side of this is there's a lot of data sharing services and they, they come in a lot of different flavors. Uh, but essentially what you're looking at there is the ability to send the images from the machine to a particular consultant somewhere else. Um, and, and to do that, it clearly needs to be networked in some form. On the most part, this is cabled or wireless ethernet based stuff. So Wi-Fi or, you know, your ethernet cables. And, and you'll also have other things depending on what the machine does, like radiation sensors for x-ray machines. They'll, they'll want to make sure that it's turned off properly and it's not overdosing um, accidentally. So it's, it's sort of self-calibrating. 
as you might imagine, these things are pretty expensive and, and therefore you don't get many of them around. There's probably, you know, in the order of magnitude of many thousands of them around the world rather than millions like you would with uh, IoT devices that you'd have in your home. These devices directly affect yeah, the ability for hospitals to look after patients, and that's because they speed up diagnosis, uh, because if you can see the insides, you can probably see that there's a problem or not, depending on what this type of problem is, uh, and uh, and therefore you don't have to cut somebody open or you uh, you don't have to wait to see what happens. Uh, you, you can go, kind of go straight to the, the cause. Um, and like I said, it's minimally invasive. So instead of having to open people up and then look after those wounds, um, you can just scan them and send them home again and find out what the answer is, which is kind of useful. Uh, there's a few different systems available, and these basically mean the price tag changes uh, quite a bit. Uh, so you'll get um, ones that are maybe £50,000. Uh, you'll get some that are hundreds of thousands of pounds and everything in between. Um, and what you'll find is that those are, uh, depending on the, the features that are available, how complex they are, um, how old they are, because the new ones are maybe a little bit cheaper depending on uh, what you're exactly you're buying. These systems the kind of major component parts of it have different operating systems depending on what it is they're trying to do. Uh, so you'll find in any given system, you'll probably have several different OSs, and that might be Windows Embedded or Windows Full Fat. Uh, you'll also get Linux distributions of a variety of different sorts, um, and potentially also real-time operating systems or RTOSs. Um, and those do different things, and they're suited for different purposes, and that's why they're there. When you look around at these systems and their kind of interoperability between themselves and the uh, the wider consultants and healthcare system, uh, what you'll find is that there's a couple standards that stand out. Uh, one is uh, like a long-running one, uh, dates back originally to 1993, and it's called DICOM, or D-I-C-O-M. And it's essentially the most accepted standard for um, the file format for storing this data, but also for uh, communicating it from one place to another. Um, it's been extended by others. There's kind of advanced versions of this. Uh, it's essentially open source. I dare say there's bits that are not, particularly in the ones that have been extended. Um, and it's part of like a certification problem. If you have a DICOM certified machine, then it will likely be able to uh, communicate with lots of other different certified devices. Uh, and that certification is quite important within the medical space because that's uh, very much how these systems uh, get to market in the first place is they go through that process in order to, uh, to become approved by the, the governing body in whatever country they're operating. Those processes are there for reasons. They're there for like safety and security and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but whether or not they're effective from a cybersecurity point of view is, is kind of uh, a little bit of a gray area. Um, it's certainly improving and it's much better than it used to be. Uh, but that's sort of the same with most tech, really. The problem here is that the certification process can take a long time. So if you know about a problem now, it might be a year or two before you can actually release a, a fix for that problem uh, before it's become certified again and, and so on. So why would an attacker bother going after these devices? Well, I think there's basically two different motivation points here. Uh, the one is the ability to monetize these attacks, whereas the other is about affecting patient health. Um, so I'm thinking like, well, money probably means ransomware or the threat of ransomware and the extortion that you can do that with. 
then there's probably medical insurance fraud. You know, can I claim that I've got a uh, a disease when I don't actually have one and therefore be off work and get the medical insurance to pay for me? Um, there's intellectual property theft. Um, you know, can I uh, steal your software or your design specs and then therefore be able to pass it off as my own or modify it to to make my system better? Um, uh, and that's generally by the, like manufacturers rather than organised crime gangs. But the other ones are pretty much organised crime gangs. Though it's a bit of a gray space, these things do half, uh, you know, spread around a bit. Um, and the health side of things, okay. So, I guess you could target an individual, and you know, those are high-profile individuals, the the U.S. president or you know whatever. But um, it's probably more wholesale than that. Um, so, what you might well end up being able to do is mixing up uh, the patient data so that your data gets passed on to the next patient or, or something similar like that, which would then invalidate your results or maybe end up with somebody else getting your surgery if uh, there was something that needed removing, say. Um, and you could also look at altering the results um, I think that one's a bit far-fetched personally because the the ability to make it look like you have a tumor or you don't have a tumor um, is, is going to be quite intense and, and pretty... Uh, and I don't just mean in terms of like, you know, the, the skill level, the time investment to make that happen. That might change over the next couple of years, I guess, with some of the, the advent of the AI stuff that we've got going on now. Uh, you could quite comfortably imagine that uh, an AI would be able to paint a picture which uh, is not just your insides, but now has a tumor that isn't there, say. Um, and uh, I, I, there's other side of this as well. Some attackers just simply want to watch the world burn, to, to misuse a quote a little bit there, but uh, you know, hospital disruption. Uh, you can easily see how if you were to stop an MRI machine from working, how that would result in uh, patients having major delays and, and problems with, with sorting out all sorts of parts of, of that process that a normal hospital, hospital operates in. There's also some suggestion out there, and there's been some papers that say that it might be possible to to physically harm an individual patient uh, with the use of these machines. They are, you know, uh, electromechanical after all. So, could you, for instance, squash a patient on the inside of an MRI machine? I, I guess the answer is probably technically yes, although you'd hope that that would be uh, a pretty limited attack. You'd probably scare them more than anything else. Uh, but then there's the other side of things, which is, well, if it is an X-ray machine, could you trick the machine to send out a much bigger amount of X-ray uh, than otherwise intended and therefore be able to induce a, a greater chance of cancer or something in the future? Um, there's, uh, uh, yeah, th th that's that's sort of... Not a very nice picture to paint, but it is is kind of a possibility, right? All right, so let's have a look at the known issues in this space. We've got a couple different problems with DICOM. So the first one was a vulnerability that is uh, dated originally or was reserved in 2015, um, uh, but it was actually published uh, much later than that, um, in uh, uh, just over a year later, that long disclosure process is is interesting, but uh, it's probably a reflection of the fact that uh, to get a patch sent out, uh, you need to have that certified, and and that's why having uh, the certification problem is is a bit of an issue, uh, because it means that you can't immediately fix problems because of uh, the fact that you've got to have it like thoroughly tested, and that costs a huge amount of money. It sort of makes sense, but there's a negative side to it as well. Don't get me wrong. The vulnerability here was uh, given a CVE 2015 8 
0.0979. And it was a stack-based buffer overflow. It's reported as being a denial of service uh, via uh, the supply of a long string, a long series of characters, to uh, TCP 4242, which is probably the, uh, the the port that is used by this bit of software. It's not clear in the uh, the official announcement why this is not also a remote code execution or RCE bug, uh, because the original uh, post about it by the, the finders uh, suggests that it might be. Uh, what I think has probably happened here is that they've kind of identified that there's a problem. They've got in contact with the manufacturers and the manufacturers have gone cracking. Let's start a fix process. And then they've either decided not to release the fact that it is also an RCE or they never bothered to actually generate the proof of concept. And so didn't want to kind of do that. And from an ethics point of view, is that the right thing to do? You're kind of ultimately getting the fix out there. So does it matter? Probably not. When you look at it, though, it's a super simple exploit because there are public versions of this exploit available. It's unauthenticated, and it is literally just let's have a massive string and send that to the port, and away you go. Uh, that basically denial of service is the box. The, uh, there are three more vulnerabilities in 2022. They're all very much related, um, and it's related to the DCMTX bit of kit, which is the software that goes with uh, the DICOM protocol, um, and it's known as being a denial of service and Privesk and RCE, uh, and it's a path traversal one, which comes up reasonably frequently with embedded systems. Again, this is an unauthenticated attack. Um, so there are issues there. The ones in 2022, I don't think um, have been around for particularly long in the public realm. They seem to have only been published relatively recently, um, even though they've got a date of 2022. Uh, and there is a patch out now. So that sort of follows the same pattern as previously used. There is an alternative to DICOM, uh, which is called Health Level 7 or HL7. And that is um, a little bit more of a modern system. Uh, it's sort of a contender, I guess, to, to the DICOM protocol and, and specification. Um, and, but that also has vulnerabilities. Uh, so you've got four that are known publicly, uh, three from the 2014, which is a little bit older than the, uh, the DICOM vulnerability, and then another one from January 2023, so very recent. Um, the 2023 one is yet to be scored, but I think it might get a reasonably high one uh, only because um, it's got uh, directory traversal again and arbitrary file unpacking, which could result in priv escalation and uh, remote code execution again. Um, so uh, that CVE is 2023-24057. Uh, uh, there are two types of messaging that go with the HL7 protocol, so V2 messaging and V3 messaging. Uh, V2 is essentially it's a serialized data structure, and uh, and this is kind of classic uh, non-HTTP communication structures. Really, um, uh, you you put them all, put all the values you want to communicate in a big long bit of text, and you separate each of those things with a special character, and that's it. You, you kind of you're away, and then you've got the uh, V3 messaging version, which is a an XML construct. So it's the same data, just stuck in a bit more of a verbose structure uh, so that you can uh, access that data much more readily uh, from a, a programmatical point of view. Uh, 
Both of those communications techniques have potential issues. Uh, so having a, a custom serialized data structure is, uh, is is great, but that means you have to like have uh, the ability to know how long the, the field lengths are and, and handle uh, errors gracefully so that you don't end up with uh, unknown conditions. Uh, and, and that's really important when you've got uh, non-fixed length strings inside those fields because if it's a variable length, how do you know that you've got to the end? Well, you look for the, the closing character or the, the delimiter. But if that comes as part of the payload, does that then screw up the rest of the structure of the message? Well, the answer is probably yes, unless you're doing some clever stuff there. Um, but both also in a similar vein, the XML one has a uh, like a deserialization flaw in the libraries uh, that come out of these, these things. So it depends on how they are deserializing it and what libraries they're, they're dependent on. It's the same sort of conceptual problem for both of those, but a different, uh, different way of creating the same effect. Um, but both could end up with all sorts of different vulnerabilities like RCEs and, uh, and, and path traversal and so on again. There's actually quite a few reports of other general stuff that happens in this space, like, for instance, the use of the file transfer protocol or FTP um, processes there, uh, which is known to be a, a very weak system. Uh, so FTP, yes, it can have authentication and username and password, but it does that in plain text and therefore is not very likely to be uh, particularly well protected. And, and it's sort of generally frowned upon in normal IT these days. The, the updating process within these tech, uh, this tech realm is, is going to be a bit cumbersome as well, because there's so many different components. You've got to be able to update all of them or the correct components at a particular time. So you need somebody who's technically savvy enough to be able to handle that. It's not just a, a, a single black box. It's lots of black boxes that work in tandem together. Uh, and therefore that will provide like, quite a big chunk of nervousness. I know I would be if I was doing an update to one of these really expensive machines is making sure you're doing it correctly is going to feel like such an important process but also when do you have the downtime in a hospital setting to then go away and spend half a day doing a firmware update for something that is a bit nebulous as a security concern that you may or may not ever actually be affected by Modern systems also exist uh, for doing this sort of data sharing stuff. So these are competitors to the DICOM and HL7 protocols. Um, and they're, they're kind of modern in that they are web-based, cloud-based systems. And AWS, Google, and Microsoft all have their own healthcare cloud platforms. There's others too, um, so Amber Health and PAC systems, for instance. But um, the, the kind of concept is is the same. You stick all of your medical data in the cloud and, and hope for the best, I guess, but it will probably also be um, relatively secure because somebody else who's got expertise has constructed this rather than uh, the, the guys who make the, the systems that do the actual imaging. Um, but that also then introduces all of the kind of web-based vulnerabilities and concerns that you might have. Uh, there's attractive options um, but from a, like an attacker's point of view uh, because this these these online platforms, these cloud systems, are uh, aggregation of data, which makes them quite juicy targets. It's also it's classed as sensitive data, um, and therefore uh, should at least in theory be more valuable on the black market. So what do I think? On the most part, these are fairly unlikely to be taken advantage of. Certainly in a kind of targeted sort of way, anyway. Um, those exceptions do exist. You know, organized crime might well want to be able to uh, uh, to extort the hospital and get money out of them, or a nation state might want to do hybrid warfare and therefore cause the nation to struggle from a 
uh, a healthcare point of view and therefore have their their attention turned elsewhere. Um, both are incredibly escalatory attacks, though. You wouldn't want to do that without considering the risks that are involved, uh, because you know if you get caught, then they're going to want to like retaliate or you know have a have a, a good poke back in some form or another. The level of sophistication to do some of these attacks as well, the, the sort of more targeted stuff, is very, very high. Um, not just as uh, as a kind of, I've got to be able to get to a point where I can attack these machines because they're usually behind firewalls and that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit, uh, you know, away from direct exposure. But also being able to do them, you need to really be able to um, know what you're doing as far as medical stuff is concerned, as well as the technical nerdy hacking stuff. Um, so I'm not particularly worried about these things. Uh, and I think in practice, it'll either work or it won't work if you were to go and get a scan. And so you'll find out pretty quick. You won't know uh, that, you know, you won't be left with that question mark about whether or not you've been given the correct scan. The biggest concern should be about the delays to diagnosis and treatment resulting from an inoperable equipment because actually denial of service attacks are super easy, as we've discussed, to, to exploit against these particular bits of kit. And so therefore you'd imagine those are the things you need to be worried about. This would be bad news for like stretched health service, like for instance, the National Health Service here in the UK, which is always in the news for, you know, being a bit underfunded or, you know, whatever and, and making out that, uh, patient delays are quite significant and i'm sure that's true in certain circumstances but this would really push that limit just that little bit too far thanks for listening i hope you've enjoyed the show please give the show a rating or review in your podcast app tweet about it post it somewhere we would really appreciate it to talk to us about any aspect of the show suggest a future topic or to ask a question about iot security please get in touch via email on helpme at yg.ht with at gotta underscore hack via twitter or by searching you gotta hack that on linkedin <laughs>